This morning we're going to be looking at uh, biblical headship in the Old Testament. But more specifically, we're going to be looking at headship, the principle of headship, in Genesis. The, uh, one of the major contentions of those in favor of the ordination of women is that the principle of headship does not exist in the Bible, and moreover, it does not exist in Genesis, and specifically in Genesis chapter 2, that is, in a pre-fall situation in the book of Genesis. So this morning, we're going to take a look at headship. We're going to briefly look at a recent statement that was uh, produced by the theological faculty, at least some of them, at our Adventist uh, University in Berrien Springs, which uh, purports to state that uh, the Bible says nothing about biblical headship. So we'll take a look at that, and then we're going to take a look at the Bible and what the Bible really has to say about headship and how it affects the whole issue of ordination. Now, let me just mention in passing here, this ordination issue is, is kind of a... It's not really addressing the real issue. The real issue is the office of elder and the office of minister. When we talk about ordination, we know it's laying on of hands for service. You know, we lay hands on medical missionaries, but they're not ordained as medical missionaries. We just simply lay hands, and they're consecrated for service. But the word ordination has always been used as it relates to the office of minister, specifically, and also elder and deacon in the local church. So when we're addressing this whole issue of ordination, we need to remember that we're really talking about what does the Bible say about who is qualified to serve in the office of elder or minister? So let's keep our focus on that particular issue and let's let the Bible speak for itself. Now, as we have already heard, the, the real issue we're dealing with is not just ordination or the office of elder or minister. It really boils down to hermeneutics. And this, this issue of hermeneutics really began to develop early on in the 1960s, at least uh, as it relates to the issue of feminism. When feminism got off the ground, you may remember the names like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem in the 1960s, 1970s. They were some of the proactive advocates of not just ordination, but women's liberation. And it was in the 1960s and 70s that uh, we, uh, this country in general, began to uh, get away from propositional truth and we began, began to embrace our feelings. That is, if it feels good, let's do it. And uh, in fact, we can even see that today with uh, no longer having any respect for what the laws say on the books as it relates to immigration, for example. We're going to do it, even though the law says we're not following the law. Now, in the 1960s, you recall that there was the baby boomer generation. In 1967, Timothy Leary came on the scene, and uh, one of his sayings was, as he went around to various universities and spoke, was not only LSD, but his little phrase was, turn on and drop out. And then we had the Summer of Love in Haight-Ashbury District of San Francisco. And the Summer of Love, if you read the uh, Time Magazine article that spoke about that Summer of Love issue, the basic theme, as they stated, was trust your feelings. Trust your feelings. And that's what's been happening in this country, and that's what's been happening in the church ever since the 60s. And so what has happened to propositional truth? 
It's gone by the wayside, and we've been trusting our feelings. What we think we want to do is what we're going to do. And so I mentioned Betty Friedan. I mentioned um, uh, Gloria Steinem. And within the church, most of the churches had, had, had up until that point had followed a faithful hermeneutic. But a new hermeneutic began to develop, and it developed long before this, and that was a, his, the historical critical method. And following that, as the women's movement got underway, the women's liberation movement, an evangelical feminist hermeneutic began to develop. In other words, evangelical feminists began to read certain texts in the Bible a little bit differently than what you would normally read from the surface, that is, a plain reading of Scripture. And lo and behold, Seventh-day Adventists, beginning in the 1970s, right around the time of 1973 and 1975, also began to adopt a different way of reading certain scriptures dealing with women in the Bible, specifically women in ministry. And so we might call that an, uh, an evolution of the evangelical feminist hermeneutic to the Adventist feminist hermeneutic. And moreover, as we came to the Theology of Ordination Study Committee, it became quite evident, in fact, it became quite transparent. In fact, they actually confessed that they were using a different hermeneutic for certain texts of the Bible. For certain troublesome texts, and those troublesome texts would be texts like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, and, and so on, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, all the texts dealing with women in the New Testament. And for these texts, they adopted a new hermeneutic called a principle-based cultural hermeneutic. Well, just as a little prelude, it was in 1975 that uh, we had a spring council. And in that spring council, it was moved and it was voted to allow women to be ordained as local elders. That was the tip of the iceberg. And that was just for the North American division. Then in 1984, in the fall annual council, it was voted to go ahead and allow the ordination of women as local elders worldwide if there was no contention, if there were no problems. You could go ahead and do it. Well, now, you must realize that the reason that they wanted to start with the ordination of women as local elders because that is simply the first step to becoming an ordained minister. And so we, we can trace this problem all the way back to 1975 and 1984. So the real issue we need to address here is the ordination of local elders and the consequent ordination of ministers as well. And so it's not in, in the upcoming 2015 General Conference session, it's important not to just address the ordination of women as pastors. We need to address the whole issue of local elders, which began to percolate in 1975. So this new hermeneutic that was confessed in the recent Theology of Ordination Study Committee is called a principle-based contextual linguistic historical cultural strategy, a mouthful, where they use extra biblical sources. Now, they say, however, that the Bible is, uh, is reliable in the salvation message. However, for certain troublesome texts, those texts determine the hermeneutical approach that we use. Now, this is their open statement. 
For these texts, we use a slightly different approach. It's called a principle-based contextual historical cultural reading strategy. Now, what this really amounts to is a variation of not the historical critical method, but a certainly a critical method of reading the Bible. And so they allow culture to become a predominant theme in interpreting the scripture. And moreover, let me read you this statement. Fundamental to this approach is its recognition that the text is semantically independent of the intention of its author. The text is primarily seen as a construct insofar as meaning is taken to reside in the encounter or interchange between the text and the reader. Did you get that? Yes. Meaning comes, comes about as a result of an interchange between the text and the reader. In other words, you as the reader influence what the text is saying. Not just the text, or the text tells you what it's saying, you interact with the text, and now you help the text say what it really means. Meaning thus emerges as an outcome of interplay between the text and the reader, both of which are culturally and historically conditioned. This is in contrast to the Rio document, the Methods of Bible Study document that was adopted in Rio de Janeiro, which states the following, seek to grasp the simple, most obvious meaning of the biblical passage being studied. In other words, a clear, plain statement of Scripture when it is clear and plain. So the issue is not ordination because in 1990 and 1995, they said no ordination. So what did they do? They just continued to commission. So there is essentially no difference between commissioning women as pastors and ordaining women as pastors. No difference at all. So the root of the problem is the office, the office of elder, the office of minister, not just ordination because we'll just commission instead. So there is a unifying principle that runs throughout scripture and that principle is the principle of authority and the principle of submission. The two go together. It's a unifying thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It begins with Adam and Eve in the garden and a pre-fall condition. It continues with Seth. It continues with Noah. It continues with Abraham. It continues with Isaac. It continues with Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. Then it continues with our Savior, Jesus, who was born as a man. Then it continues with the apostles, who are all men, that Jesus ordained. Then it continues with the replacement of Judas Iscariot with a man. And it continues with the ordination of the seven male deacons. And it continues with the ordination of, by Paul and Timothy and Titus of men as elders in the church. And then it concludes, we'll just re quickly go to Revelation, and where we have the, in New Jerusalem, the 12 gates and the 12 foundations. What are the names on them? 12 male apostles and the 12 patriarchs. So this principle of male headship or headship just runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it seems as though our friends simply can't see it. But even Rosemary Radford Ruther, a Catholic theologian who said herself, it is very plain that Genesis 2 is speaking of male headship in the Garden of Eden. And so she couldn't handle it, and so she adopted a historical critical method. 
Now, here she is, and she admits that's what the Bible teaches. So here's the, seminar, the recent seminary statement, August 2014, on biblical headship. And what they basically say, they talk about a unique, non-transferable headship of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches, they say. A unique, non-transferable headship of Christ. And they try to justify this by only taking a portion of the Bible and by taking only a portion of the spirit of prophecy. And they leave out all the other pertinent text. Let me read you one that is pertinent. The great head of the church superintends his work through the instrumentality of men ordained by God to act as his representatives, to act as his representatives. Further, she says they are ambassadors, just in the preceding sentence. Christ's ministers are the spiritual guardians of the people entrusted to their care. Their work has been likened to that of watchmen. One other statement in Signs of the Times in 1890, April 7, God has provided light and truth for the world by having placed it in the keeping of faithful men who in succession have committed to others through all generations up to the present time. These men have derived their authority, who they derive it from? Christ. In an unbroken line from the first teachers of the faith, Christ remains the true minister, the true head of his church, but he delegates his power to his under shepherds, to his chosen ministers who have the treasure of his grace in earthen vessels. God superintends the affairs of his servants and they are placed in his work by divine appointment, ordination. So we're going to take a look now at uh, the principle of headship and Genesis 1 through 3. Then we'll quickly look at some of the texts in the New Testament. Now, the, the view that we're taking here, of course, is that creation headship existed in the Garden of Eden before the fall. And after the fall, that headship was ordained of God and imposed uh, upon Adam and Eve. The second view is, of course, that there was no creation headship in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But after the fall, a servant leadership was divinely imposed uh, by God upon Adam. No creation headship in the garden. That's the uh, position of our friends uh, advocating the ordination of women. Now, you see, if we can establish, and clearly we will establish with 26 points, that uh, there was, in fact, male headship in the Garden of Eden, if they can establish that, that, that there was no male headship, then, of course, they have a good case. But the point of this presentation is to refute their position and to demonstrate that male headship did exist in the pre-fall condition in the garden and, of course, after the fall. So in the beginning, let us, God says, let us make man in our image. So God created him in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now, in one paper, it states that there was no hint of male headship in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1. No hint. But we will enumerate in this presentation at least 26 points of male headship, including Genesis chapter 1, where God said, let us make man in our image. So let's go ahead here. And by the way, Genesis 3, which is concerning the fall, is basically a commentary on Genesis 2. Now let's take a look at a few statements by Ellen White on this issue of male headship. Let's see what she has to say. Number one, Adam was to stand at the head of the earthly family. 
Number two, Adam was the monarch of the world. Number three, Adam was the vicegerent of the Creator. In other words, the Creator appointed him second in command. Number four, the Sabbath was committed to Adam, the father and representative of the human race. And by the way, when it says Adam was to stand as the head of the human family, it goes on to say here, the relationship existing in the pure family of God in heaven was to exist in the family of God on earth. Under God, Adam was to stand at the head of the earthly family to maintain the principles of the heavenly family. What does this tell us then about the heavenly family? If Adam was the head, then there must be heads in the heavenly family. In other words, the angels must have leaders or heads as well. And that's in volume six of the Testimonies, page 236. Number five for Ellen White, Adam was crowned king in the Garden of Eden. Number six, God made Adam the rightful sovereign over the works of his hands, the rightful so sovereign. God made him the ruler of the earth and Adam was Lord in his beautiful domain. So what is missing in all of these statements by Ellen White? Well, we don't find any co-monarchs. We don't find any co-vicegerents. We don't find any kings and queens. We don't find any co-heads. We don't find any co-sovereigns. We don't find any co-rulers, co-representatives, or co-lords. What we do find is that Adam was the monarch and sovereign of the earthly family, the head of the earthly family. When, we, you, when she uses the words monarch and sovereign, those words connote the idea of singularity. Single. Adam was solely the monarch. No one else. Not Eve. Okay, now the first point out of Genesis concerning biblical headship. Adam was created first. God formed man from the dust of the ground, and man became a living soul. Now, if God had intended for men and women to, be, to have equal roles functional roles, he could have certainly created them simultaneously from the dust of the earth, right? But God saw fit to do it in a very, what we'd appear, a cumbersome way, and first created Adam from the dust, and then after talking with Adam and going through all kinds of things, he then put Adam to sleep and took a rib from his side and created the woman. Why did he do well? Go to all that trouble. So do we have co-representative heads here? Adam's actions alone affected the human race. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. His actions alone affected the whole human race because he was the head. The race was redeemed by the last Adam, not the last Adam and Eve. The Bible doesn't talk about a last Eve or a second Eve. It does talk about a last Adam or what we call a second Adam. And so, as the redeemed are in heaven and they approach Jesus, something happens. And here is the following. Great Controversy, page 647. As the ransomed ones are welcomed to the city of God, there rings out upon the air an exultant cry of adoration. The two Adams are about to meet. The two Adams. The Son of God is standing with outstretched arms to receive the father of the race. Not the father and the mother of the race. The two Adams. The second Adam, Christ, replaced the first Adam, the new head of the human race. Number two out of Genesis. Adam was given authority and responsibility. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. So prior to the creation of Eve, we have Adam was provided with a garden home. 
not Eve. Adam was then placed in the garden. Adam was provided with a source of food. And then Adam was instructed by God about the garden to tend and keep it and to bear rule or to rule in the garden. So Adam was clearly in charge at this point as we're in the early part of Genesis 2. Number three, the tree and leadership accountability. God made it clear to Adam that he had accountability in the garden. That is, he was instructed about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and only he. That is, person to person, face to face by God. So we have face to face, we have priority of creation, priority of communication with Adam, not with Eve. We have priority of leadership accountability about the forbidden tree. And all of this instills a sense of headship in Adam. He knows that he's in charge. Of course, this is before the woman comes on the scene. And then God says, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll give him a helper. So Adam is given a helper. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the idea, the theological ideas here about the Hebrew and so on. But let me just state that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 9, Paul alludes to this idea of about a helper when he says, man was not created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. That is, as a helper for the man. And number five, Adam then names the animals. Now, naming in the Bible always connotes the idea of authority. Whoever's naming is the one in charge. And so God brings all the animals to Adam, and Adam names all the animals. And the woman later just simply accepts the names. She doesn't contradict Adam and change any names. Number six, Adam was, or the woman is derived from the man. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken out of man was made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. This is Paul's justification for headship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's, verse 3, it talks about the principle of headship. Christ is the head of man, man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Then it goes on to state, and, Adam, and uh, Paul then speaks about, and he brings about the idea of why man is head of the woman, and he justifies it by stating that man is not from the woman, but the woman is from man, going back to this idea in Genesis 2, 22. The rib was made into a woman, the rib taken from Adam. Number seven, God presents the woman to Adam, and God brought her to the man. Now, this idea of bringing the woman to Adam, he is, God is basically giving a gift to Adam. In fact, of all the gifts given to Adam, Ellen White says the following, that Eve was the one gift which in his eyes outvalued every other gift. In fact, she outvalued every other gift so much that he allowed her to take precedence over the Word of God. Well, this whole idea of presenting the woman as a gift to Adam again infused Adam with this idea of headship. And moreover, it becomes even clearer when we go to point number eight, Adam speaks first upon the creation of the woman. So probably the first words that Eve ever heard were from the voice of Adam. She didn't say to him, Adam, where do you come from and who are you? God brings the woman to Adam and then Adam says the following to the woman. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, she informs 
the woman of her origin. And the woman gains an understanding of who she is. That is, she realizes that her source is from Adam. That she came from him and so somehow he takes priority because she came from him. So the woman gains a self-understanding of her relationship with Adam in this whole idea of where she is brought to the man and then the man speaks first. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, point number nine. And then Adam said, she shall be called woman, naming again. She shall be called woman. Now, this is a generic name. That is true. It's not the word. It's not the name Eve. It's a generic name. But whenever names are given, for example, God called the light day. He called the firmament heaven. He called the day or the dry land earth. These were all names. Likewise, he called the woman. She, was, she shall be called woman, a name. So Adam or Eve realizes Adam's leadership as she gets acquainted with where she came from. And number 10, the man is to take the initiative in marriage. This is all from Genesis chapter, chapter 2, before the fall. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Paul alludes to this in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, I tell you a mystery. The two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery of Christ and his, concerning Christ and his church. The two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery concerning Christ and his church. Now, Paul has already stated that Christ is the head of the church, just as the husband is the head of the wife. But when he puts it in the context of the two shall become one flesh, and he says it's the mystery of Christ and his church, and Christ is the head of the church, and the husband is the head of the wife, clearly Paul is making the point that the husband is the head of the wife because it dates back all the way to pre-fall when they were brought together as one flesh. Okay, now we're going to Genesis 3, the post-fall. So we had 10 points out of Genesis 2 in the pre-fall situation. Now in Genesis 3, the woman initiates headship reversal. What does she do? Well, she leaves the protective sphere of her husband. She was told to stay by the side of her husband, and Adam was told to protect her. And so the, the serpent says to the woman, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And rather than the woman fleeing immediately to keep, seek counsel from Adam, she goes ahead and begins to dialogue with the serpent. In other words, she begins to, to assume independence and assert a leadership role or position. She leaves the protective sphere of Adam and she seeks a higher sphere than her original position. Now, let me read you a statement here from Ellen White, a higher sphere. El, uh, Eve had fallen into temptation by separating from her companion, contrary to the divine direction. Eve had been perfectly happy by her husband's side in her Eden home, but like restless Eve, she was flattered with the hope of entering a higher sphere, separating what was her original sphere, her husband's side. She was perfectly happy by her husband's side. But she was seeking a higher sphere than that which God had assigned her by her husband's side. In attempting to rise above her original position by her husband's side, she fell far below it. A similar result will be reached by all today women who are unwilling to take up cheerfully their life duties in accordance with God's plan. 
And she goes on then to state that women today are doing the same thing, reaching for positions for which they are not qualified, seeking to enter a higher sphere. Now, they were not seeking to be like God, which is what our theologians' friends on the other side would say, well, she was seeking the higher sphere to be like God. No, Ellen White is making it very clear in her statement, her original sphere was by her husband's side, and when she left her husband's side, she was seeking a higher sphere of equality, leadership. She initiates the dialogue with Satan, and she puts it in the context of women today who are seeking a higher sphere, and they're certainly not trying to be equal with God, but they're seeking a higher sphere. Number 12, the woman initiates a dialogue, continuing the re role reversal, as God said in Genesis 3, 1 to 2, you shall not eat of every tree. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees except for one. And so the, the serpent speaks to the woman as though she were the head, that she was in charge, that she could make the decision herself. In other words, he's attempting, Satan is attempting to reverse the headship principle right there. He knew what the principle was. And he knew he couldn't get to Adam. He knew Adam would never be deceived with a direct confrontation. So he goes through the woman to get to the man. He's reversing, attempting to reverse the headship principle and put her in charge. Does he succeed? Yes. The serpent deceives Eve, and the woman responds to the serpent's statements with leadership aspirations, apparently. Number 13, the woman initiates transgression by continuing the role reversal, headship role reversal. And when the woman saw the tree, she took of the fruit and she ate. So what does the woman do here? She forsakes Adam's headship when she takes of the tree and she eats. And at that point, she makes Adam her head, or she makes Satan her head and forsakes Adam. Number 14, the woman attempts to usurp Adam's headship role, and she also now goes to her husband. She gave to her husband and said, I feel so good. I've never felt so exhilarated in all my life. I feel no harmful effects. So Eve urges Adam to eat, and when she does so, she urges him to relinquish his headship position. Adam thinks about it. Adam mourns because he knows what has happened. He mourns that he permitted Eve to wander from his side. He knew he should have kept his eye and he should have been protecting her. He knew what happened. He failed to protect Eve. Adam recognizes his failure and as he thinks about it, his headship hangs in the balance. What should I do? Number 15, the usurping of Adam's headship role is consummated. And he took of the fruit and he ate. He made his decision. I want the woman. Adam relinquishes his headship position. He ate. The role reversal was consummated. And we read the following in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 56. Through the woman, Satan conquered the man. And through the man, Satan conquered the race. You see the sequence? Through the woman, Satan conquered the man. And through the man, Satan conquered the race. But he had to get to the woman first. This all spells male headship. Isn't it so abundantly clear? 
Number 16. Now here's the unequivocal evidence of male headship and role reversal in the Bible. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now that happened not when Eve ate the fruit, but when Adam ate the fruit. Why not Eve? She did it first. Only when Adam ate the fruit. Now, by the way, our friends, our theological faculty members at Andrews University never want to cite this text. And Adam ate the fruit and they both became naked when Adam ate the fruit. In other words, this was the signal that Adam was responsible. He was the head, not Eve. In other words, the generic transgression of Eve did not cause nakedness. If Adam had remained loyal, what would God have done? He would have given a new wife. Here's what Ellen White says, page 56 of Patriarchs and Prophets. Adam did not realize the same infinite power who had from dust of the earth created him, a living, beautiful form, had in love given him a companion, a companion and he could supply her place. He would have a new wife, apparently. Number 17, God seeks and apprehends Adam first. He doesn't go after the woman, God goes after Adam. He apprehends Adam first. He doesn't say to Eve, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? So Adam's headship is confirmed by a priority of nakedness, priority of apprehension, priority of accountability. Number 18, God interrogates and indicts Adam before the, before the fall, bypassing Eve. Have you eaten, Adam? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And so we have priority of creation, nakedness, apprehension, accountability, and also priority of indictment by God and priority of interrogation by God. To Adam, not Eve. And then, number 19, God, or Adam, indicts himself. And so how does Adam respond to Eve? The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So what does Adam do here with these words? He basically indicts himself. Listen to this. Adam acknowledges his headship failure by saying, by acknowledging he failed to protect, protect the gift. You gave me that woman. That's the gift. You gave me. The woman you gave me. Number two, he yielded to Eve's leadership. She gave me. She gave me of the tree. And he, he, she, he, he confesses, I yielded to her leadership. And then number three, he relinquished his headship role and he says, I ate. So Adam indicts himself with, so, with those three ideas. You gave me, she gave me, I ate. All over. Point number 20, God interrogates Eve second, even though she sinned first. And the woman said she was deceived. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So again, we have headship confirmed because she was uh, interrogated second and she, was, and she transgressed first. And so Satan deceived Eve by speaking to her as though she were the head. And number two, she was deceived because she doubted the word of God. If you don't want to be deceived, don't doubt the word of God. Amen. Take a plain, thus saith the Lord. Amen. Now, folks, I think we have to face facts. People that are simply denying a plain 
reading of Scripture on this whole issue and doubting what the Word of God, the plain Word of God says, are being deceived. They're allowing themselves to be deceived, which leads to spiritualism. When you doubt the authority of God and you make yourself an authority, an authority instead. Number 21, Adam's reversal is corrected. The woman, he said, to the woman, he said, God said, your desire shall be uh, for your husband and he shall rule over you. So Adam's headship is restored by God by divine decree. He will rule over you, Eve. And harmony is restored. Now let's look at this idea of harmony. God had made Eve the equal of Adam in harmony with each other in the Garden of Eden. But after their fall, their union could be maintained and harmony preserved only by submission on the part of one or the other. So we have harmony before the fall and we have harmony preserved after the fall. Now, our friends will take this statement from Ellen White and state, well, here, here it is. She was placed in subjection only after the fall. But let's read the entire context. She is saying that harmony existed before the fall. Eve was equal of Adam in harmony with each other. But after their fall, their union could be maintained and harmony preserved only by submission on the part of one or the other. In other words, what she is doing here is contrasting pre-fall harmony, which was natural, with post-fall harmony, which would be unnatural or imposed by God. So what is happening here is simply restoration of the headship principle that existed before the fall, and now it's going to be imposed after the fall. Harmony began with, now harmony is going to be imposed or preserved after the fall. Number 22, God holds Adam accountable for relinqu relinquishing his headship responsibility. To Adam, he said, because you have heeded the, heeded the voice of your wife. In other words, because you've listened to your wife, this is what's going to happen. He was held accountable for two reasons, listening to the voice of his wife, headship replaced by Eve, and secondarily, dis disobedience to God. Number 23, the death sentence was pronounced upon, Eve, or upon Adam and Eve, but it was pronounced upon Adam alone. You shall eat of the bread till you return to the ground, but for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return, Adam. So the death sentence was not pronounced upon Eve, and of course this is confirmed in the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, by one man sin came into the world and death through sin, and therefore death spread to all men because of which all sinned. So death came into existence because not of Adam and Eve, but because of what Adam did. And the two Adams are contrasted repeatedly by Paul in Romans, Romans chapter 5 in particular. The two Adams are contrasted because one began as the head of the human race and the second Adam ends up as the head of the human race. Not co-heads at the beginning and not co-heads at the end. Number 24, God, Adam reassumes his headship responsibility. And what does he do? He calls his wife's name Eve because she is the mother of all the living. So again, he names the woman, but he names her Eve this time, the mother of all the living. Again, signifying his authority over the woman. 
naming the woman. And the woman simply listens and accepts her name. She, re she reassumes her natural role. Number 25, Adam is driven out of the garden, and the woman naturally simply follows Adam. And so we have, in the beginning, Adam is placed in the garden, followed by the woman. And at the end, we have Adam expelled from the garden and the woman simply following Adam. So we begin in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam in the garden, followed by the woman. We end in Genesis 3 with the Adam leading the woman out of the garden. And in both cases, Adam begins and Adam leads. By the way, that is a perfect inclusio, but I won't go into the inclusio idea just now. Point number 26, the image of God. Let us make man on our image. This is in Genesis 1. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The declaration, let us make man. There clearly is one person of the Godhead speaking to the other. Let us. This implies that the one saying, let us, has authority telling the other one, let us begin to make man and woman. It implies authority and submission in the Trinity. So the image of the Trinity is to be reflected in the male-female relationship. Let us make man in our image. Male and female, he made them in the image of God. Headship or authority and submission in the Godhead, let us make Likewise, in the image of God, male and female. So is there a hint of headship in the Trinity, in the Godhead, in Genesis 1? Indeed, there's a hint. Here's Ellen White's statement. They had wrought together in the creation of the earth and every living being upon it. And now God says to his son, let us make man in our image. That's in volume 1, Spirit of Prophecy, page 24. A second statement, when God said to his son, let us make men in our image, Satan was jealous of Jesus. Now, this is, before Adam, this is before man was ever created. And Satan clearly, or Lucifer, clearly sees Jesus in a subordinate role to the Father. Okay. That concludes the idea of biblical headship in Genesis. Now we're briefly going to take a look at 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2. Ingo Sorky is going to deal much more with this. I'm just going to allude to it briefly. In 1 Corinthians 11, we have the, the whole idea of uh, biblical male headship in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Christ is the head of man. The man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. That's the principle of headship, the principle of headship in the Bible, which our friends at the seminary didn't want, even want to cite. And then Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11, man is not from the woman, but the woman is from man. And man was not created for the woman, but the woman for man. And he takes those ideas directly from Genesis 2 and that's why we read Genesis 2. It's quite evident when we're reading Genesis 2, just the way Rosemary uh, Rafford Ruther read it. It was obvious on the surface, but it seems to be so invisible to others. 
So clearly there, there is no reciprocity in headship based on 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul makes that very clear that the man is to be the head of the woman in the church. He uses the principle in, in verse 3 to make it establish the principle. And then he goes on to say the following. He talks about head coverings, which is an application of the principle. Man is not to cover his head. And these are the reasons why man is the glory of God. The woman is for the glory of man. Get the, get the difference? Man is for the glory of God. The woman is for the glory of man. Man is not from the woman, but the woman from man. Verse 8. And the woman was not created, the man was not created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. All the reasons for male headship. Thus, the woman needs authority on her head. At least that would be the application. Now, there would be a different application today. Head coverings represent respect for the head or the authority, the authority figure. In this case, the man being the authority figure in the church. So man was created for God, woman was created for man, and the woman was created from the man. So we have the principle of headship clearly established there in 1 Corinthians 11, established before the fall. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 2 and 3, we, Paul is really dealing with the, the question is, how are you to behave in the household of God? That's the whole question. And that's how he concludes at the end of chapter 3. I write these things so you might know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. So the whole issue in these two chapters is how to conduct yourself in the household of God. And he talks about men praying and women, women should adorn themselves in particular ways. Women should learn quietly and with submission, uh, with no meddling. Women sh uh, should not teach or have authority or usurp authority over a man. And the rationale he gives is the Adam was formed first, then Eve. The second rationale, Eve was deceived and sinned first, headship reversal. But nevertheless, the woman will be saved if she remains faithful in childbearing. What is he saying here? He's basically saying that her primary role is in the home. 1 Timothy chapter 2. So he's distinguishing between the role of men in the church and the role of women. The woman's primary role is, as Ellen White has been, as uh, was mentioned earlier this, this morning, the woman is more important in the man, not only in the home, but probably in the church, because of her responsibility in raising God-fearing children. There is nothing more important. However, in the church, God has appointed certain leaders, and he's, getting certain, he's given qualifications for those leaders. And by the way, the prerequisite, the number one prerequisite for being a leader in the church, a spiritual leader or an elder, is you must be a man. The leader must be a man. That's a prerequisite. It's not a qualification. It's a prerequisite. You must be a man. Then if you are a man, you must also have these other qualifications. You must be godly. You must be blameless. And if you're married, you must have, have only one wife and so on. And be a faithful husband. You should be able to rule your house well. And therefore, he goes on to say in chapter 3, elders are to be men of one wife, able to teach and rule their house well. And there are 59 occurrences of this word man, an heir in the New Testament. And in every case, they are all male subjects. In other words, this idea of he must, an, an, a bishop or an elder must be a, 
a man of one woman or a husband of one wife, it cannot be interpreted as a spouse of one spouse, which our friends are trying to do. In fact, that's what many of them were trying to do at the Theology, Theology of Ordination Study Committee that we just finished with, a spouse of one spouse. No, Paul is very specific about this. Able to teach and refute false teachers. That's a primary qualification. Able to deal with false teachers that come into the church and are causing havoc. Authoritative teaching of elders in the church is repeatedly referred to in the Bible. 1 Timothy 2.12, chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 11, Titus 2.15, Hebrews 13.7, verse 17, and verse 24. Authoritative teaching of the elders, primarily in terms of rebuking false teachers. So qualified men are only permitted to be elders, and basically Paul is prohibiting women from functioning as elders. He makes it very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. So the issue at stake here is not the appointment of women into ministry. We encourage the appointment of women into all kinds of ministry. But only one restriction, and that restriction is the biblical office of elder, which many times includes the, the minister. Elder, in times past, when a, a minister was ordained, he was first, at first called a pastor or an elder. He was, first called, he was at the first called an elder at that time. So let's go on here. Paul concludes his uh, statement about how to conduct yourself in the household of God, and he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Now, why does Paul conclude with a statement like that that doesn't seem to harmonize with the rest of the, uh, the text that we're reading? Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, referring to Jesus. Well, this is an allusion to the condescension of the Son of God stepping down to be our Savior. And it all has to do with headship and submission as it relates to how to conduct yourself in the household of God between men and women. And so Paul concludes with that statement about the relationship of the Son of God to the Father, the mystery of godliness. So we have authority throughout the universe. Uh, there are a number of statements by, statements by Ellen White, which I'm not going to read it right now, but she makes it very clear that there are angels who are in charge of other angels, there are commanding angels, and these commanding angels are, quite, are, are always a, a little bit taller than the other angels in their company. The angels were marshaled in companies with a commanding angel being taller at their head. The very highest angels in, in the heavenly courts are appointed to work out the prayers which ascend to God. For Bible Commentary, page 1173. The first one was in Volume 1, Spiritual Gifts, page 17. So we have authority and submission with the angels. We have it in the Garden of Eden. And in fact, we have it in the Trinity. Now I'm quickly going to go through the Trinity very quick here to show you that this is why Paul establishes the principle of headship using 1 Corinthians 11.3, God is the head of Christ. And it doesn't just refer to his work to redeem the human race in the, in the incarnation. That's right. 
It refers to because the Bible goes on to say that the son will be subject to the father throughout eternity. First Corinthians 15 verse 28. So throughout eternity, the son will be subject to the father. He was subject to the father during the incarnation. Was he subject to the father prior to the incarnation? Yes. yes. We know that Lucifer didn't understand the position of the son of God. He thought that Jesus was just another glorious angel like himself, but maybe a little bit brighter, perhaps, and maybe, maybe in charge, but he should be equal and so on. Let me read you a few statements here. Concerning the incarnation and the salvation, there's little debate that Christ was subject to the Father. We know that from the Bible. Jesus said, I will seek the will of the Father. I always do those things that are pleasing to the Father. I've kept my Father's commandments. And so God does the directing and he does the sending and he does the commanding. But we read likewise in the, in the eternity past, the sovereign of the universe. By the way, the sovereign of the universe is always the Father. The sovereign of the universe had an associate, a co-worker, one in nature. Who was the co-worker? Jesus. The father and the son relationship has always existed. The son was never inaugurated as the son or the word. He's always existed as the word. Here's evangelism page 615. The word existed as a divine being, even as the eternal son of God in union and oneness with his father from everlasting. He was the mediator of the everlasting covenant, the word, the son of God, the mediator from everlasting. Everlasting means eternity. This would suggest that from eternity, the son has always been subject to the father. However, we don't have an explicit statement to that effect, but we know for certain that even in heaven before creation, Lucifer understood the son as being inferior in terms of role to the father. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 338. There had been no change in the position or the authority of Christ. Lucifer's, Lucifer's envy and misrepresentation made necessary a statement to the true position of the Son of God. But this had been the same from the very beginning. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 38. So there you see the confusion of Satan. Volume 1 of the Spirit of Prophecy. The son should be equal with himself. The father made known that it was ordained by himself that Christ, his son, should be equal with himself. He, his son, he had invested with authority to command the heavenly host. Who, invest, who invested the authority? The father and the son received it. Second in command. Endowing the son with unlimited power. Then the son received permission to step down from heaven. Early Writings, page 126, the son pleaded with the father and he finally obtained permission from the father to give his own life as a ransom for the race. So we see the son being submissive to the father prior to creation, during, during uh, Adam and Eve's, or during uh, his incarnation, and he will be throughout eternity. So we have the headship principle in the Trinity, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that will be throughout eternity. Let me just finish this up because I'm running out of time. The Son of God was next in authority to the great lawgiver. Second volume, Spirit of Prophecy, page 9. The Son was second in authority to the great lawgiver. 
The Holy Spirit is subject to the Son. The Son appointed the Holy Spirit to be His representative here upon earth. I'm afraid I'm running out of time. I don't have time to go through all the rest of this, but let me just state to conclude here, the image of God includes ontological equality in terms of nature and being, but headship and submission in terms of their functional roles with one another. They were created, he created the male and female in the image of God, which implies that they, are, they were created with functional role differentiation. Human beings were a new and distinct order. They were made in the image of God. And the whole purpose of the plan of redemption is to restore the image of God in man. And he intends to do that within the church as well. The image of God not only includes character, but it also includes husband and wife, their relationship in the home, and their relationship in the church. May God bless the 2015 General Conference session. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.